Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Nahum? Uh, we're going to go through the 12 minor prophets. We did Jonah, uh, and now we're going to look at Nahum. Uh, we're not going to go in any particular order. I've done Malachi in the past. Uh, probably after Nahum, I'll jump back to Hosea. Uh, but we will go through the 12 for our evening series. So we'll look at the prophet Nahum tonight because there is some connection with Nineveh and Jonah. Uh, but not that much, but uh, we'll see as we go through. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this evening. And I'll begin reading at verse 1. Prophet Nahum, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we confess we do not fear you as much as we should, yet we are thankful that you are the God who is holy, holy, holy. Thank you that you are righteousness itself. Thank you that you're the one who inhabits heaven. You're the one who inhabits eternity. You're the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. You are absolute perfection, absolute moral purity. And yet we are thankful that you created this world. And as we consider our sinfulness, as we consider our former life, as we consider our remaining corruption, truly who is man that you are mindful of him? Thank you for the mercy and forgiveness that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can stand because of Christ the Lord. Thank you that he is the worthy lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And thank you that because of him, we can stand. Thank you that salvation is of the Lord. And because of him, we know that we have an inheritance that is unfading. We know that we have a home, a promised land that awaits us where there's no more pain, no more sorrow and no more suffering. And so as we endure suffering in this world and as we have to deal with tyranny in this world, Help us to recognize that you are a vengeful God. And may we put our faith in you. May we trust in you in this. May we not take vengeance for ourselves. May we recognize that a day of judgment is coming. And may we commit our problems and all our concerns to you, even the, tyr uh, the tyrannical leaders who are over your people. So we ask that today would be a great day of comfort. We also pray that we would uh, be terrified of you in a filial way that we would love you that we would fear you we'd recognize that you are god and we are man that we might worship you all the more so help us to grow as your people help us to be uplifted as your people as we rejoice with trembling we also pray if there are any here today who do not know you please save their souls please uh, uh to teach them and open their eyes to see christ open their eyes to see their sin Open their eyes to see that there is a great day of judgment coming, and may they flee that judgment to come in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you give us illumination from on high, and we ask that you give it again as we come to this uh, prophet. We pray that you would help us to see, help us to hear, help us to learn what you have for us this evening. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. 
Amen. Well, the anger of the Lord has been a bit of a recurring theme in our church for the past couple of weeks. We saw that in Psalm 7 as David calls upon the fury and judgment of the Lord against his enemies. We saw that in Joshua 6 as God routes his enemies at Jericho, Joshua 7, Joshua 8 as well. And then today we start a book that is all about the anger of the Lord toward the city of Nineveh, toward the nation of Assyria. And while most modern Christians balk at God's anger, his promised judgment is actually a comfort for the people of God. And it's especially a comfort for the people of God when there are cruel, tyrannical, wicked leaders. When there are countries in power with wicked men who bring about great destruction and pain and sorrow and suffering upon others. God's day is coming. The day of the Lord is coming and the wicked shall receive their due. And so the vengeance of the Lord is actually a compassion of God toward his people. It is actually a recognition where we can find our comfort. We flee to the God who is terrifying. We flee to the God who we ought to fear, where we find refuge and strength in him rather than running in fear because we cannot run away from him. And what's so comforting is the enemies of God, they're not going to get away with it. And it's what makes Nahum's prophecy both comforting and terrifying all at the same time. And it's very clear that Nahum is prophesying against Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. It is the superpower at this time. They were once the instrument of God's wrath against the northern kingdom of Israel. And now they're going to be liable to God's judgment. And the reason is they were a cruel nation. They were an arrogant nation. And they brought about great destruction upon many, including the northern kingdom and even Judah as well. And so it is a comforting message when there is a cruel nation that God is going to bring judgment. It is, as Gregory Cook says, a severe compassion. And I think that's a good way of describing the meaning and purpose of this book. God's severe compassion, severity towards his enemies and compassion towards his people. As far as the time frame of it, it's probably during the reign of Manasseh, 640 to 622 BC. It is certainly after the fall of Thebes. We're going to see that in 3.8, which is around 664 BC. And it's prior, obviously, to the fall of Assyria in 612 BC. So anywhere from 664 to 612, but perhaps narrow it further, 640 to 622, when Manasseh, that cruel king, was in Judah. And so this is well after the northern kingdom is taken into captivity by Assyria. And certainly Judah has had their near captivity experience already, but God delivered them out of the hands of Assyria, but they're still over them as as their uh, for the primary superpower at this time. So this prophecy is important for the people. When there is a great superpower and a cruel superpower, there is a God who is even above that superpower as well. So the problem that we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, is the cruel sins that bring Yahweh's vengeance. Yahweh's vengeance is founded on his holiness. It's founded on his righteousness Man's heart is desperately wicked, deceitful. Who can understand it? We see man do cruel things towards other men, and God is going to bring an end to it. 
God might delay, his judgment might, uh, we might seem like he's taking a long time, but one day the day of judgment shall come, and the Assyrians were notorious for their cruelty, and God will bring an end to them as well. And so in Nahum 1 verses 1 through 6, Nahum prophesies about the sovereign vengeance of the Lord against the enemies of Israel. It's about his vengeance, and we see his character specifically in verses 1 through 6. And while it is a lesson for Nineveh, it's also a lesson for Israel at this time as well. It's also a lesson for us as well as we consider who our God is. So we'll look at the vengeance of the Lord under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the vengeance of the Lord in verses 1 through 3b. And secondly, we'll see the terror of his vengeance, verses 3c through 6. So the vengeance of the Lord and the terror of his vengeance. So let's first look at the vengeance of the Lord in verses 1 through 3b. And notice we see the introduction in verse 1 or the oracle uh, mentioned in verse 1. We see the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The idea of a burden or an oracle is typically used in God's word to describe two things. One, there's going to be a destruction that's about to come. And two, perhaps it is to fulfill earlier prophecy. You see, what's interesting is the Bible builds upon itself, not just the new uh, building upon the old, and we see uh, fulfillment in the new, but there is also the Old Testament writers building upon one another as well. And as we're going to see, he's building upon the prophecies of Isaiah. And Isaiah was like, like a, a hundred years earlier. He was the one who prophesied that, uh, that, 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 that Assyria would come. They would bring judgment upon the northern kingdom. And remember, 722 is when the northern kingdom is taken out. Remember, this is the divided kingdom after, um, after uh, Solomon. It's under Rehoboam. It divides into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And so I know at Nahum's time, it's just Judah remaining. So if I say Israel, I'll try to clarify what I mean by that. If I mean the people in general, or if I'm referring to the northern kingdom. Uh, but when there was the northern kingdom, they were removed. There was only wicked kings in the northern kingdom, and God used Assyria as judgment against them. And God, in many ways, does use Assyria against the southern kingdom, but not to the same destruction that we see with the northern kingdom. Babylon will be the one who takes out the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom was primarily Assyria. And so Isaiah prophesies against them. In Isaiah chapter 10, in Isaiah chapter 14, we do see some prophecies against them. God is going to use them as a rod of judgment, but he's also going to bring judgment upon them. Chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation. God is going to use the wickedness of Assyria against him. And he says that in verse 7. Yet he, Assyria, does not mean so, nor does he, his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy. Brethren, God is sovereign over all things, and I think we struggle with that. I struggle with that. That's difficult for us, but God is the one who works through secondary means. God is not holding a gun to the king of Assyria's head. He's not holding a gun to Sennacherib's head. They want to take out and expand their kingdom. They want to destroy and bring about expansion to their empire, and they're going to do it by any means necessary. 
and God uses them, God is over them, and God uses them as the sovereign ruler overall as an instrument of his judgment, an instrument in the hands of an angry God. But they're also going to receive their wrath as well, or his wrath as well. They're going to receive their judgment. He says in verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. He spends the rest of the time dealing with some of that. Then also in chapter 14, verse 24 and following, there is the assurance that Assyria is going to be destroyed. You know what's beautiful, brethren? Israel's not going to be destroyed forever. That is, there's going to be a Messiah who comes. There's going to be one who reigns. The people of God shall reign forever by way of the Messiah. A new, true Israel, who is Christ, and the new Israel, which is the church in him. And even the old Israel does have restoration, but they're still waiting for the true Israel to come, who is Christ. But Assyria shall be no more. Babylon shall be no more. Many kingdoms of this world shall be no more. But guess what? The church of Christ continues on. The church of Christ remains forever and ever. And so even though the people of God had to deal with Assyria for a long period of time, God's judgment is going to come upon them. And so Nineveh is the, the, the object of Nahum's prophecy. They became the capital city of Assyria in a lot of ways because of God's grace. If you remember Jonah, that's kind of a hard one to think about as well. When God saved the people of Nineveh all the way about a hundred years or so before Nahum, God uses that earlier grace, providence, and likely builds the city of Nineveh with the slaves of Israel. That's hard. The northern kingdom taken and is, is used to build and expand the capital city of Nineveh. God's providence is so glorious and marvelous, but sometimes God's providence is hard as well. And so Nineveh, they are going to receive their due. They are the object of this prophecy. And then we see the book of the vision. It's what Nahum saw, but he also wrote it down. What would be of Nahum the Elkishite. Now, little is known about Nahum. All we know about Nahum is what we see in the book of Nahum. In a lot of other prophets, we see some sort of parallel in the kings. Not so with the prophet Nahum. But we do see that perhaps he is from the village of Elkosh. That is, and there's a lot of ink spilt on where Elkosh is. Is it in the northern parts? Is it in Galilee? Is it in Judah? Who knows? But the main idea is that perhaps Nahum has seen the atrocities of Assyria. He's seen what they have done. He's seen the atrocities of Manasseh, but there is a God in heaven. And so he puts his faith in God. Everything we're going to see in verses 2 through 6 and following is faith in God. God is mighty. God is vengeful. And when there is a, a, a king and a power that is, uh, that is reigning, there is one who is above them. And what's interesting, you know what Nahum means? Compassion. That's kind of ironic, isn't it, for the book? But again, I think Greg Cook's severe compassion helps. And you know what Elkosh means? God is severe. So there it is, severe compassion. This is the main idea of the entire book. So it's a burden against Nineveh. It's given by Nahum the Elkishite. And then in verses 2 
Uh, through 3b, we see more of the body and we start the body of the book. And notice in verse 2, we see the vengeance of the Lord. Verse 2, it says, God is jealous. Not a corrupt, insecure jealousy like people have, but a vigilant commitment to covenant, as McKay says. It highlights his exclusive love for his people. The way in which a husband ought to have an exclusive love for his wife and expect the same in return. And in fact, many times the word jealousy is used to describe God. It's in some sort of covenant setting. God has shown covenant loyalty to them, and he also demands the same. And the people of Israel do not do a very good job with that very thing. But God is a jealous God. And even though Manasseh's reigning and there hasn't been great kings, uh, there's some good kings, but there still hasn't been tr- uh, a lot of great kings in the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem are still the place of David's throne. It's still the place of the people of God. And there are still enemies of God, even when there's a wicked king like Manasseh reigning at this time. So God is a jealous God. God loves his people. For whom does Christ die, dear brethren? His church. And what is his church described as? A bride. He came to die for his people. He came to die for his bride, the people that he loves. And so that is in view here with the idea that God is jealous. And if he loves a certain people, and there are other wicked people that go against the people of God, God is going to bring vengeance for his people and avenge his glory as well. And so we see a threefold vengeance. The Lord avenges. The Lord will take vengeance. Uh, 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 Sorry, the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious and the Lord will take vengeance. That's why I titled it vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. And perhaps as I said, very, you read that, you're like, what? He kind of comes out at you like vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. But it should go a little bit more like this vengeful 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 you love my solo there we have to add another line to holy 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 when you can't miss that connection we can't miss the fact that god is holy other we can't miss the fact that he is a righteous god we can't miss the fact that we see the manifestation of his righteousness and justness in his wrath The Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his people. And the people of Judah are still his people. Not that they were that deserving, by the way. Again, Manasseh is a terrible king. We read about him in 2 Kings 21, but we also read about him in 2 Kings 33. And one thing I always forget about the life of Manasseh, he reigned a long time, 55 years. That's not the thing I forget. What I forget is that God moved him to, uh, to repent. God moved him to seek God by faith. Do you want to know how God does that very thing? Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. He is a terrible king. You read about all the terrible things that he does in verses 1 through 9. He raises up wooden images. He raises up altars to the Baals. He breaks down everything. Hezekiah was a great king. 
Hezekiah broke down all those places. He brings them all back. He causes his son to pass through the fire. He practices soothsaying, witchcraft, sorcery, consults mediums and spiritists. He does much evil in the sight of the Lord. But then verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria. God uses Assyria against Manasseh, and he uses the place of affliction as the place of salvation, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom." This is a terrible king, and he seeks the Lord, and he knows that he is God, and God answers. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And then in verse 14 through 17, we see how he removes many of the high places. He fortifies the military. He, he, he takes away idols from the house of the Lord, and the altars built on the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He casts them out of the city. He repairs the altar of the Lord. He sacrifices peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of his Israel. Nevertheless, though, not perfect, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. He is moved and God works by the king of Assyria to bring and humble Manasseh. Many of the old writers do believe he is truly converted. That terrible, awful, vile king is converted and God uses Assyria to humble him. And so Judah certainly was deserving of their oppression. God certainly still heard the cry of Manasseh and brought him back. And even in the midst of all of that, even as God still uses Assyria, Lord, what of Nineveh? What will you do against the people of God? The remnant for sure would have been crying out, Lord, why is it that Assyria is over? Us. There would have been a question of the true people of God. Why is this one? Why are these ones still reigning? Why are these ones still have power? Why do these ones still afflict your people? So God is, uh, or I guess Nahum is saying, God will avenge. The Lord will take vengeance. He will bring vengeance upon his enemies. But notice in verse 3, the control of the Lord. His anger is not like you and I. His anger is not quick. His anger is controlled. And we see that there in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He is the God who is long-suffering. And he might delay. He might take his time, humanly speaking. And it shows that he is the one who will show forth his justice, but in a just sort of way. And hopefully as that was read, and I reread it just now, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. I hope you have Exodus 34 in your mind. You see, there are lessons from Israel's history that help as God speaks to Nineveh, but also helps Israel be reminded about who God is. And if you remember in Exodus 34, that is the golden calf situation. That is Moses, they don't know where he went. And so they say, Aaron, make us a God. Oh, give me all your gold and just throw into this pot. I don't know how that happened, how that golden calf came out of there. No idea how that occurred. 
And then they're bowing before that. And what does Moses do? He intercedes on behalf of the people. And God proclaims the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Emphasis there is a God who forgives, God who still punishes for what they did, but a God who forgives them for sins that they completed. But this is also referred to in Numbers 14, verses 17 and 18. You can turn to Numbers 14. This is the first generation as they come to Kadesh Barnea, as we have the 12 spies, 10 were bad, two were good. The 12 spies go in. Only Caleb and Joshua say, we can take them. The other 10 go, they're giants. We can't take them. And so they're fearful. They don't trust in the promises of God. They don't trust in the Lord. And they then reject the Lord. And so Moses intercedes again. And notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. This is how Moses intercedes. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken. Let us see your power. Let us see your goodness. Let us see your forgiveness. Let us see your justice. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord responds, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, they have put me to the test and have not heeded my voice. Therefore, they shall not see the land. So God is still going to go with the people. He is still forgiving, but that first generation is not going to enter into that land. Caleb and Joshua will, the second generation will, but that first generation will not. And we see there Moses pleading based upon the character of God. We see God forgiving Israel for their actions, making a golden calf, and for their inaction, not trusting in the Lord God Most High. He is a good God, he is a forgiving God, but he is a just God as well. And he delays, and he is patient, and he is long-suffering. And then, this is also mentioned, or is referred to, in Jonah. Remember Jonah 4? Jonah doesn't like the fact that God is gracious and compassionate. He's angry. He's more concerned with his plant than he is with the mercy of God and the people of Nineveh. And he says, Lord, I knew, I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were going to be kind to this people who are uh, uh, this people of Nineveh. And Jonah didn't like that. This was a hundred years earlier. Uh, Yahweh was very kind to the people of Nineveh, showing his mercy, showing his sovereignty, showing his goodness. But now God is going to manifest his justice toward them. But it's delayed. He is slow to anger, but it is great in power. Lesson for Assyria, lesson for Judah, lesson for us all. God is very long-suffering. And in fact, the beauty is that as God delays his final judgment, it brings salvation to many. It brings salvation to undeserving sinners. All of God's elect shall be called forth. That is an assurance. That is a surety that as God delays, it is salvation for undeserving sinners like you and I. 
So God is long-suffering. He's even very long-suffering with Assyria. It's slow to anger, great in power, but, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The wicked will not go unpunished, though God delays. Though it seems like they're getting away with it, God is the God in heaven, and he shall avenge. He shall do it at his timing. He shall do it in his way. The day of the Lord is coming. There is the final day of the Lord that is coming. There is the fact that God does bring judgment upon Assyria in time and space. He brings judgment upon Israel in time and space. He brings judgment upon Judah in time and space. And he brings judgment upon Babylon in time and space as well. This is an important motif, although the wording isn't here in verses 1 through 6, is the, the idea of the day of the Lord. Not the Lord's day. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is found throughout the prophets. It's also in the New Testament as well. The day of the Lord is the day of God's judgment. Now, the Old Testament days of the Lord are types of final judgment. And so when God judges the Israel in 722, the day of the Lord, judgment. When God judges Judah in 586, the day of the Lord, judgment. When God judges Assyria in 612, day of the Lord judgment. And what this shows is that even though Assyria thinks they got it going on, they think they're the mighty power, and we're going to talk about their arrogance in just a moment, God will bring them down. And many of the commentators say that perhaps he's prophesying at the height of their power, at the height of their might. And God is saying, I will bring them down. I will bring them low. I will avenge my people. I will not at all acquit the wicked. The day of the Lord is coming. And we'll talk more about the day of the Lord uh, throughout this, throughout the 12, and even as we go through this evening as well. But the day of the Lord and the vengeance of the Lord should be a comfort for the people of God. I think there are three ways we can see it as a comfort in these verses. The first way we can see it as a comfort is when tyranny seems to endure. It seems that there are many leaders, for whatever reason, they reign for a long period of time. They bring pain, they bring destruction, they bring much hurt and much suffering, and demonstrate much cruelty. Manasseh certainly was one. Assyria certainly is another as well. I mean, they're not taken out till 612. I mean, Judah was having problems in 701. Israel was having problems in 702 and pri- uh, 722 and prior. They were reigning for a long time. And they had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Yet they were in power. But God is the God over all of them and they shall fall. That is a comfort when tyranny seems to endure. But there's also the comfort for God's people in the midst of persecution. Their end and the end of this world shall come, and those armed with cruel hate shall judge. Those who are persecuted, their persecution shall not last forever, and the reign of the wicked shall not last forever as well. This was a perplexity, This was a conundrum in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which we saw. We see there that there is, it seems like wickedness and iniquity is prevailing at the seat of judgment, that is, in the courts. 
But I said in my heart, verse 17, sorry, of Ecclesiastes 3, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every work. When we see injustice, what is a comfort? The day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment shall be. The day of the Lord is on its way. Then we see in verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that I have returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. Sometimes it seems like those who are oppressed have no hope. Those who are persecuted have no comfort. But the day of the Lord is coming. And the vengeance of God is a comfort for his people. And then thirdly, it is a comfort because it shows that he is the sovereign Lord. All that we do, dear brethren, is by faith, right? <laughs> Everything in life is faith, right? When we see this wicked tyrant reigning or that wicked tyrant reigning, we, Lord, please remove them, but he doesn't. Should we not then trust in his dispensation of his decrees? Should we not trust in what he is doing? If it was my way or your way, there are certain leaders you would want removed tomorrow. But that's probably not going to happen tomorrow. And so what do we have to do? Trust in the Lord God most high. Okay, Assyria's reigning. What do we do as the remnant? Trust in the Lord God most high. Vengeance is his. He says that in Romans 12, it belongs to him. Certainly he is set up. Hopefully there's good and righteous judges in this world uh, to rule with justice and equity. We know that doesn't always happen. There can be justice in the present age. It doesn't always feel like that, but God's rainbow is still in the sky. I mean, he is the one who made the covenant with Noah and all creation with him that whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. And so we can pray to that end, Lord, bring justice and equity in this land. But if not, the day of judgment is on its way. We must trust that. Sovereignty is a blessed boon to the people of God and especially reformed folk. But there are some things that are very hard about it, especially when there's a tyrant who's reigning. McKay says, Nahum provides the response of faith. No matter how ominous the problem, faith resolutely refuses to view matters horizontally, looking only to man and what he can do to resolve the problem. Nahum does not talk about armed resistance, guerrilla fighting, or political intrigue. Instead, he begins with a declaration of faith. He looks heavenward. He looks to God and asserts in the perspective of that God what will happen to Nineveh. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. Uh, is avenges. Vengeance is of the Lord. So that is the vengeance of the Lord. Let's then look secondly at the terror of his vengeance, 3C through 6. And there are three things we're going to see about his terror or the terror of his vengeance. Notice how sudden it is, 3C. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. God has his purposes. God has his reasons, but his vengeance will come suddenly. Though he delays, it's going to be perhaps like a storm. And the idea of whirlwind and in the storm perhaps carries the idea of a theophany, God appearing from heaven to earth. Certainly we see God appear to Job in the whirlwind. And there God humbles Job and teaches Job that Job isn't perfect. Certainly Job, uh, all the afflictions that come upon him isn't necessarily because of sin. But Elihu says to him, God is God and you are man. 
And God never answers Job. God never answers his questions. God never has to answer us, right? We simply just trust in him. That's the main idea of the book of Job. Glad consecration to God in whatever dispensation he gives for our lives. Whatever unfolding of our circumstances comes to pass, if we are gods, if we are Christ's, we must trust in him. And thankfully, when there are wicked men, it can be sudden when that tyrant is brought low. And it can be just like a storm. And storms sometimes seem like there's no rhyme or reason. There's lightning over there and thunder over here. And then you try to count about how close the storm is and try to figure all that out. You don't know where it's going to strike. But God has his ways and it shall be quick. It shall be sudden. And we also see that the, 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 the language of the clouds or the dust of his feet Uh, perhaps that describes him jumping on the heavens and he's over the heavens. Not that he jumps. It's just an image for us. Could also be be the idea that the dust being kicked up uh, when horses come into battle. But the point is it's sudden. He is coming. He has his ways and he shall bring destruction. And you know what? The day of the Lord is going to be like what, dear brethren? The final day of the Lord, a thief in the night. (laughs) Nobody knows when that day is going to be. First Thessalonians 5. I get my eschatology not from Revelation, dear brethren. Revelation is very hard to understand. I think I got it, but, you know, but for the most part, it's very hard to understand. And I have probably my things that I get wrong about that. See, I'm an arrogant jerk. I understand all that, and I need to work on that. Uh, But I get my eschatology from First Thessalonians. I get my eschatology from 2 Thessalonians 1. I get my eschatology from 1 Corinthians 15. Things that are clear, things that are crystal, and 2 Peter 3 as well. But concerning the day of the Lord, and again, the Thessalonians were all about, when is the Lord coming? It's wonderful how the Bible still applies to today. When is the day of the Lord coming? You don't know. I don't know. So be ready. By looking to Christ, honoring him, and, uh, and, and waiting for his coming. But what does he say? Verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Stop trying to figure it out, Thessalonians. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. It's going to be sudden, but we don't know. We know it's going to happen, but we don't know when. So when Christ comes back and he raises people from the dead and brings uh, the judgment day happens and the new heavens, new earth, which is all the same day, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, we should not be surprised. But we don't know when it is going to happen. We must be ready for when it comes. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are the, uh, of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you are doing. Don't sell all your stuff. Just live your life. 
Don't try and figure it out. Just move day by day, knowing that the Lord is coming. Isn't that a comfort for the people of God for that? You don't have to figure it all out because God has got it under control. And the day of the Lord shall come like a thief in the night. So it's going to be sudden. Then secondly, notice how nature altering it is. Verses four and five. Notice in verse four, uh, the first part there, he makes the waters dry up. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. This ought to draw our attention back to the Red Sea and ought to draw our attention back to the Jordan crossing. It's almost like I planned that. (laughs) It's almost like I did that on purpose. God's providence helped us. I did think of that as I was prepping this. I'm like, you know what? Let's do Joshua 4 in the morning. But it was a reminder for Israel. Who is your God and who reigns supreme? Again, not just for Nineveh, but for Israel. God is the one you ought to fear. He should be your fear and your dread. Not Nineveh. Don't fear them, but fear God most high. Look what he did with the Red Sea and look what he did with the Jordan River. Things that might seem like they cannot be moved or shaken. God is the one who dries them up. Certainly in Exodus 14 through 15, we see the Red Sea there. We see God fighting for the people in that song in Exodus 15 and the Jordan River crossing in Joshua 3 and 4. So it's a reminder for Israel, but it's also a warning for the nations. Yahweh will make you like Egypt. Yahweh will fight you like he did the Canaanites. And it could be the case that Nineveh, one of their great defensive barriers, was a river. And so if God dries up that river, they have no hope. God will do this very thing. He will alter nature to demonstrate his might and his power. He does that with the Red Sea. He does that with the Jordan River crossing. It's a sign for the people, but also a warning to anyone who comes against the people of God. McKay says, but the truths Nahum expresses about the Lord are still valid. And alas, needed in a world where evil empires arise and men pitilessly butcher and terrorize one another. The strength of faith lies in being able to grasp that the seemingly unassailable Nineveh of this, uh, Ninevehs of this world have to reckon with the reality of the Lord. Or to put it in new covenant terms, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that a declaration of faith as well? If Christ is for us, who then can be against us? What can man do to us? And we ought to declare that when our eyes and our ears seem to fail us. When we see the world around us and we freak out, the church isn't doing great. And yes, humanly speaking, we might see decline. We might see those things. But what does God's word say? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church. Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So he makes the waters dry up. And then notice at the end of verse four, the second part of verse four there, he makes lush lands wither. Bashan and Carmel wither, the flower of Lebanon wilts. Bashan was known as a place of rich pasture. There were the bulls of Bashan. They were the fattest, plumpest, best steak in town sort of place. Carmel, fertile mountain, and Lebanon were known for their fruitfulness and lushness. You know what else is interesting? They're all in the northern parts. <laughs> Bashan, if you look on a map, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon are all in the northern parts. Guess what happened to the northern parts? 
they were brought to destruction by God Most High. And so he takes those things that we might think would never stop being lush, and he removes them. They wither, they wilt. God reverses what they are. And then notice in verse 5 how he makes terrifying natural phenomena melt. I haven't really been in a lot of earthquakes. I know we're preparing for a big one at some point, right? They keep saying there's going to be a big one in this part of the world some point soon. But I surmise it's terrifying. I surmise it's something that would cause us to shake and be fearful. Well, those things that scare us are scared of God. And so if they're scared of God, should we not then be fearful of God and recognize his might and his power? And so things that seem impenetrable... Notice the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all those who dwell in it. He is the one who created it and they ought to fear him. And if they fear him, we ought to fear him as well. We ought to recognize he is the creator. We are the created. We are not the creator We are the one who make idols. We are the one who think we're the creators and and rulers of our life, but it is God most high. Should we then not fear him and trust in him? If they're scary, do we fear the Lord? Yes, revere, but fear and have faith, but trust and look to God knowing he is over all and we are but men. He is God and we are men. They fear, they are fearful. Even Isaiah in his calling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I am a man of unclean lips. Lord, I am a man who who cannot be in your presence. How can we be in his presence, brethren? How can we stand before him? How can we be before this God who is absolute moral purity when we in this world were born in sin? So it is a God. uh, It is all um, uh, the natural phenomena are terrified against him. And then the third thing that we see in verse six, when it comes to his terror is how all encompassing it is. Notice verse six, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. And that first part, all of this really is a question for the proud who stand before him. Zephaniah 2.15. Here's what Nineveh says. I am it. There's none beside me. Nineveh is arrogant. Nineveh is prideful. They make themselves God. Sennacherib in 701 taunts. Israel, he taunts Judah, he taunts Hezekiah, he taunts the Lord God Most High. Well, God sure did a number on him, didn't he? He sure humbled that king. So perhaps God is being sarcastic in return. Who shall ascend? Who shall stand before me? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? The people that once repented and humbled themselves, and I believe those people at that time were believers, but later on, these ones have not. Robertson says that the preaching of Jonah, the city had repented, called on the name of the Lord and had been spared. But that tender hearted sorrow for sin has been replaced by an arrogant affirmation that they themselves were God. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before 
him, but who also can hide from his fury when it is poured out. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Obviously, the answer to all of this is no one. No one can stand before him. No one can endure the fierceness of his anger. No one can hide from his terror and his fury. That's what makes the coming day of judgment so very terrifying. (laughs) And it should be terrifying. And I do think we see this in Revelation 6. We'll spend our last few moments in Revelation 6 and 7, 5, 6, and 7. But in Revelation 6, I believe the the seals are describing the time between Christ's first and second coming. I believe verses 12 through 17 is describing the final day, the great day of wrath, the great day of judgment. And notice... Verse 15, and the kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and the mount and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us. They'd rather die by the rocks than be before the terror of God most high fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Jesus is the one who takes away the sins of his people, but he's also the righteous judge who will bring and make his enemies his footstool. Why? Verse 17. For the great day of wrath has come. God must righteously punish sin. God must righteously punish iniquity. And he's going to do that on that great day of judgment. Who then can stand before him? We see that at the end there in verse 17. Who is able to stand? Now, thankfully, the question for the proud is the comfort of the saints, isn't it? You see, in Revelation 5, we see John weeping. Verse 4, for no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And he opens it and they're poured out. And verse six is the wrath of God is described being poured out. Who is able to stand? Then we have Revelation seven. This is an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. I believe the 144,000 is not literal. It's a figurative way of describing the whole of the people of God who have been redeemed and chosen. The whole of the people of God. How can one stand before God most high? Who can stand before God most high? It is these people. And the reason these people can stand before God most high and not have to fear that terror, that judgment, is because of the Lamb of God. Because of Christ and him crucified. Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people. Because of the one who is worthy. And we see in 710, all of every tribe, tongue, and nation crying with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
Then he describes in verse 14, all these are the ones in white who came out of that great tribulation, which I believe, again, is the time between Christ's first and second coming, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because we fled the judgment to come in Christ. Dear brethren, if you are a believer in Christ today, the only way you stand before God on that judgment day And the only reason you stand now before God without his wrath being upon you is because of Jesus Christ. It is only in him that we are able to stand. And because of that, we do not need to fear that final day when it comes. We are resurrected. We go with resurrected bodies to that final judgment. All our sins are forgiven in Christ. We are not guilty now, but we will be declared not guilty on that day before that judgment seat. All because of Jesus, because of his life, living the law perfectly, in his death, dying as that perfect sacrifice, his being buried, his rising again, his ascension, and the promise of his coming. Everything that we have, the, the blessed reality is we can be, uh, f- we have fled the wrath to come and the judgment to come in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. So brethren, do not fear. Our God is in heaven. Our God shall avenge. And thankfully, we stand because of Christ our Lord. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for your righteous judgment. And thank you that we see this in your righteous fury and vengeance. Thank you that vengeance does belong to you. And thank you that when we deal with tyrants in this world and when your people are persecuted, we can come before you and pray and give everything up to you, knowing that we find our comfort and strength in you, knowing that we find our comfort in the God who is sovereign over all. We ask and pray that you would give us comfort, that you would ask us to help us to trust in you as we walk in this world. Please forgive us for not appreciating your fury, not appreciating your vengeance, not having a right and holy fear of you. Please forgive us of this very thing. Help us to revere, help us to honor. Thank you that we have found our refuge in you, the God over all things. And thank you that you, Christ, shall make his enemies his footstool. We long for Christ's return. We long for his coming again. Just as he ascended into heaven, we know he shall come out of heaven, and we pray that he would come quickly. Thank you that as you delay it is for the salvation of your people, of your elect, but we do also ask that you would come come quickly and usher in the new heavens and new earth. So thank you for the comfort you give us now. Thank you for your righteous judgment. Thank you for the terror of judgment, and thank you that we, your people, do not need to be afraid of that day. Thank you that this is because of Christ and because of his power. We ask you to help us to walk in your ways. Give us strength for the day we pray. In the name of Christ.